Our society works on a system of various laws and institutions put in place to enforce and interpret these laws. While the system is far from perfect, it's the best we've got and critical for how we work as a society. Various crimes see different punishments, are harder to prove, and require certain amounts and kinds of evidence to reach the minimum requirement of beyond a reasonable doubt. While this term may seem ambiguous, it's the most fundamental and important part of our justice system, along with the whole idea of innocent until proven guilty. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Armchair Lawyer. Today we have a slightly heavier topic to handle, and as such I think I'll be a little more reserved this time around, just to be sure I don't offend anyone or in any way make light of the topics we're covering today. So, get ready for some serious talk as the court is now in session. One of the most challenging crimes to prove are the very sexual assaults. The reason they are so hard to prove is because of the nature of the crime, as generally they are committed away from any witnesses or any other way to corroborate any witness testimony, which is basically just a fancy way of saying verify. While there's no actual charge for rape in the Canadian Criminal Code, there are varying levels of sexual assault similar to regular assault charges. These levels are sexual assault and aggravated sexual assault, with a subcharge of sexual assault with a weapon for both, as well as provisions including a third party or injury. The most difficult form of assault to prove is regular sexual assault, as there is often no bruising or fluid to examine in terms of physical evidence. This lack of physical evidence means that police, prosecutors, and jurors must rely on the testimony of both the victim and the accused. However, while there may not be physical evidence of regular sexual assault, there is almost always physical evidence of aggravated sexual assault, which is defined as causing severe injury or maiming, but this also covers rape. But how much evidence is needed to charge an attacker, and more importantly, how much is needed to convict? Before we get into the specifics of how much evidence is needed to charge and convict, as well as case precedent and such, we need to go over evidence. There are several types of evidence, but there are certainly more common types used in a sexual assault case. The most common types of evidence to be used in sexual assault cases is testimonial evidence, such as from the accused, victim, and character witnesses, and sometimes even from individuals who actually witness the offense. Other forms of evidence likely to be involved in cases are forensic evidence, such as DNA and hair analysis, circumstantial evidence in terms of large amounts of intoxicants being consumed by the victim or the accused, physical evidence in terms of bruises resulting from a struggle, or even digital evidence if the accused was stupid enough to brag about it online or through text. Firstly, we'll start with testimonial evidence. Testimonial evidence is any evidence given as a testimony, either in the witness stand, in an affidavit, or any other sworn statement. This is the most common form of evidence in sexual assault trials and is the basis of any prosecution or defense in these situations. The reason sexual assault turns into a he said, she said situation is because of the fact that the only reliable evidence most times is the word of either individual involved, and oftentimes it can be difficult to know who to believe. Because of this difficulty and usual lack of evidence, defense attorneys will often call for what are called character witnesses. These work much the same as a reference for a resume. They would get up on the stand and say what a fantastic person the accused is and attempt to persuade the jury that any allegations of sexual assault are ridiculous. The problem with testimony, however, is people. People forget. Especially with how backlogged courts are, many people forget the events of something that happened up to years ago, depending on how long a trial takes to start. On top of that, an estimated 55% of sexual victims were either intoxicated or otherwise involved in alcohol, with an estimated 74% of their perpetrators as well, according to a US Library of Medicine study. This heavy involvement of alcohol introduces an obvious issue, that being intoxication has a habit of clouding one's memory and perception. 
these two factors, that being the extent of time before a trial and the heavy involvement of alcohol and other drugs, means testimony can sometimes be dubious, especially when either the victim or the accused says something different from their initial sworn statement, which happens often when facts get confused. The next type of evidence I'll cover is forensic evidence. This is far more straightforward than testimonial evidence, albeit harder to get. This evidence relies on any forensic data that can be gathered, such as hair fragments, blood, and other fluids. Due to the nature of DNA extraction, it is a lot easier to get forensic data when fluids are involved, such as blood or semen. Because of this, forensic evidence generally only plays a part in aggravated sexual assault, as opposed to regular sexual assault. This is because there is far more likely to be fluids to analyze in cases of rape or extreme violence than there would be in purely physical contact. Forensic evidence is the most powerful and convincing evidence available because of the nature of DNA. No two people are the same, and getting a positive DNA match is as good as the crime being committed in the courtroom itself. Solid forensic evidence almost always ends in a conviction. This is almost impossible to disprove. However, in situations where the sexual act itself is not in question, the forensics are useless because then it is a matter of consent, not a matter of whether or not any sexual act occurred. The last two types of evidence are far more straightforward. These are digital and physical evidence. Digital evidence is much rarer in these situations than physical evidence because it requires evidence such as emails, text messages, internet posts, or other electronic documents to contain evidence of a crime. The only scenario in which digital evidence is usually entered is in the instances of the perpetrator admitting or bragging to a friend or other individual over the phone or text, which is tantamount to pleading guilty if found by investigators. Physical evidence, on the other hand, is far more readily available, especially in more violent instances. Physical evidence can include anything from bruises and scratches to vaginal tearing and intestinal problems to severe injury and occasionally even death. These cases are usually then treated as murder, as well as aggravated sexual assault. Physical evidence is usually acquired by medical professionals during a full-body examination, and because of the nature of the injuries, it is often critical for examination to happen as soon as conceivably possible after the offence to maximize credibility and chances of the evidence being sufficient. The final thing to talk about with evidence is corroborating evidence. This is any evidence that supports the case, usually confirming testimony. While there are no formal requirements for a minimum amount of corroborating evidence, the more there is, the better chances of a conviction. Corroborating evidence could be any type of evidence that supports the primary testimony, such as witnesses, bruising, DNA, or digital evidence, that in any way support what either the accused or the victim is saying on the stand. However, there is a more nuanced version of corroborating evidence that people tend to forget about. As described by Victor Vaith, founder of the Gunderson Center for Women's Health, he said that if a child who describes that his or her assault occurred in a room painted blue, police should obtain a warrant and visit the room. Were its walls blue? So, that was corroborating evidence. This idea of corroborating evidence allows investigators to verify testimony so that the victim could accurately describe the assault in a bedroom and recall, say, the color of the duvet or the side of the room the window was on or the color of the wall or how many posters there were on the wall. These are all things that substantiate the story the victim is telling to the jury. Now we've covered different kinds of evidence, we need to look at what is required to lay a charge and how much evidence is needed to convict. The very simple answer to the question of how much evidence is needed to convict is that there doesn't need to be any evidence at all, other than the victim's testimony, and there is case precedent to support this. In the case of Fouad Afshar, a child counsellor who was accused of sexually assaulting a patient, there was absolutely no evidence other than the testimony of the victim. There was no compromising information in Mr. Afshar's computer or any other notes. He had no record 
and there were no other victims. However, Mr. Afshar still received a six-year sentence with probation after three years, had to register as a sex offender, and lost the right to practice counselling. This decision was overturned at appeal, however, when it was later deemed that the testimony of the child was inconsistent and unreliable. However, this still proves that it is possible to convict someone with the power of testimony alone. Other situations are not so forgiving, as there are instances where there have been several witnesses and physical evidence, but the accused still receives little to no punishment. An example of this being Brock Turner. Turner was convicted on three counts of felony sexual assault, but only received six months in a county prison, as opposed to the 14 years he should have faced given the nature of his offences. This case had several witnesses, including two other students, who interrupted Turner's assault and restrained him until police arrived. The issue with this case appeared to be the fact that the victim failed to recall the incident accurately due to being unconscious, discrediting the prosecution's case. All in all, there is no objective minimum evidence required for a conviction, and the conviction can vary greatly from case to case. Due to the difficult nature of the crime and the way our justice system works, it is incredibly difficult to consistently weed out the truth from two individuals. The main goal of our system, however, is not to imprison guilty offenders, to prevent innocent individuals from being charged for crimes they don't commit. This is a common philosophy of many lawmakers and prosecutors to let, say, nine criminals go free if it means preventing one innocent person from going to jail. While the system doesn't sound very appealing at first, if some thought is given, you can see why the system is built like this, and that's because our legal system is a major part that sets us apart from unjust societies, because we value innocence as well as a fair trial, even if that means sometimes letting some criminals go. Policymakers are constantly looking for ways to reform our judicial system, but no one has yet to come up with something better. The old methods are not something we want to return to. Trial by combat and testing the validity of someone's soul by attempting to drown them are not effective ways to determine innocence. The situation of sexual assault is even more delicate because of how difficult it is to prove, and therefore the source of a lot of public outcry when justice isn't served. When these issues are presented, we must remember the cost of sending these guilty men to prison by lowering the bar for evidence is a slippery slope, as not only will innocent people be imprisoned, possibly for life, the lowered burden of proof will slip into other fields of law and we risk losing our capacity for a fair trial and giving people the power to imprison whomever they like at so much as a single word. While it is hard to give a baseline of evidence needed, it is clear that a strong and consistent testimony is crucial, and any corroborating evidence helps. The most effective corroborating evidence is, of course, other witnesses. So if you ever see anything you don't like, or hear about an investigation involving something you've seen, don't stay quiet. Do something, and say something. Sexual assault is a societal issue that we as a society need to fix. If the public can work to stop the perpetration of sex crimes, then we won't need to worry about the flaws in our justice system. We would always have the evidence we need, and the culture to prevent sexual assaults from happening in the first place. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something or that this has made you think or reflect in some way. This has been the Armchair Lawyer and court is now out of session.